Psalm 119. We, uh, we've been in this psalm and really set aside the month of December to, uh, to be in this psalm. Um, and um, we said on Wednesday night that we're, we're here for a couple of reasons. One of those reasons in particular is to, uh, to try to help stir us up, motivate us for those who maybe your Bible reading has waxed and waned over the year and uh, you're um, getting geared up for maybe a new reading plan, some consistency. Um, maybe Psalm 119 would be a good help and maybe reframing the way you think about your Bible reading, but also motivating you as you move into um, a further commitment in that. We've also said Psalm 119 a lot of times is chalked up as the long psalm about the Bible, and that's just not true. Um, it does reference Scripture a lot, but Psalm 119 is really the, uh, the, the long psalm that is the uh, longest eye-to-you conversation in Scripture as the psalmist is communing with God through the Word uh, throughout various seasons of life and, and difficulties. And so rather than starting at the, at the beginning and working our way to the end, um, we said Psalm 119 is full of little nuggets or doorways in for meditation. It's, um, it's general enough that we don't have a ton of details to put the whole picture together, but it's specific enough that if we spend a little time and we park it in a section or two, there is lots to meditate on and apply. So really, that's what we're after. So today, we're going to be looking at, kind of parking it on, Psalm 119, verse 24. Psalm 119, verse 24 if you've been reading along in Psalm 119, just in any sort of a uh, reading this month, uh, you may have guessed that I was going to park it here eventually. Psalm 119, verse 24 says, Thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. Thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. So just to kind of get a feel for where we're going, we could do a couple of things with this. We could, we could think through what does it mean for something to be a delight? What does it mean for something to be uh, a, a counselor? Or we could just through observation open up the psalm, hopefully, and see how is it that this man says this? Our first message, our intro into Psalm 119, we said it would be just a worthwhile read to read through Psalm 119 honestly and to just pause and stand in awe of how this man speaks to God and speaks to God about His Word and what His Word is to Him. So I want to spend this morning thinking about this little doorway. Your testimonies are my delight. And they're my counselors. How do you think about God's Word? What do you delight in? Is there any delight here for you? And are His precepts, are His testimonies your counselors? It could also be translated or phrased, your testimonies are my men of counsel. Okay. Advisors, counselors, it's, it's clear enough from the word there. So I imagine if I ask the question and we would all have to answer, do you view Scripture the same way that the psalmist does here? Not everybody would say no. But I think everyone would say, I want to grow in viewing Scripture more and more this way. I want to delight in God's Word more. I think all believers would say that. I think all believers would say, I want to be able to access Scripture in such a way that 
that I can say that it is my counselor, that I go to the word and and this is what's there. This is what I find. Well, what we're going to do this morning is just look at three different ways that the psalmist in Psalm 119 views Scripture that, that I think leads to his ability to be able to say, your testimonies are my delight and my counselors. So, so really the question is, what undergirds a statement like this? And um, I want to argue from the psalm that there are at least three things, three aspects of the way the psalmist views Scripture that leads to this. Number one, if you read Psalm 119 as a whole, it's very clear that the psalmist views Scripture as a means to an end. Okay, The psalmist views Scripture as a means to an end. Here's what I mean by that. Scripture is not viewed as a rule book. A bunch of do's and don'ts for the psalmist. It's certainly not viewed as some abstract body of truth or as a relic that is meant to be primarily revered from a distance and hopefully preserved. No, when you read Psalm 119, it's very clear from the beginning that Scripture is His means to communing with the living God. He, he comes to the Word not simply to acquire information, although information is there to be, is there to be acquired, but He comes to Scripture to learn about the living God, to learn how to interact with the living God, and then to be guided in the way that He responds to the various realities of life as He seeks to commune with God through each of those. So, Scripture is, is viewed through the psalmist here as a means to communing with God through Christ. Look in Psalm 119, verse 57, for example. Psalm 119, verse 57, where the psalmist says, Thou art my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep Thy words. Lord, you're my portion. What does that mean? It's, it could also be translated, you're my, you're my inheritance. You're, you are what I have received. This relationship that I have, this fellowship, this, this communion that I have with you, this is my inheritance. Sad to say, but, so often, whenever we're thinking about the blessings that come along with being saved by Christ, we can make our way down the list without even considering the fact that the greatest blessing that we have received is a living relationship with the living God. You realize you have access to God the Father through the work of God the Son, by means of the quickening power of God the Spirit, and you've been given the Word to guide you in that. He says, Lord, You're my portion. You're my inheritance. I could lose everything else that I have, but I have You. Also, Psalm 119, verse 114. So the 114th verse. Psalm 119, verse 114. He says, Thou art my hiding place and my shield. I hope in Your Word. Lord, You're my hiding place. You're my shield. 
and I hope in your word. Again, these are all observations. We don't need to do word studies to come up with these kinds of things. But you look at Psalm 119, 114, and it's, it's clear that Scripture is informing the way that the psalmist is interacting and relating to God. He says, Lord, you're my, you're my shield. You're who I go to for protection. You're where I run. You're a refuge. You're a present help in time of need. Do you relate to God that way? You know, whenever, whenever you think of a, whenever you think of a truth like that, is it one to chalk up and to put in our uh, mental categories of things to know about God? Or do we hear a, do we hear a reality like that and we think this is ways for me to relate to God? These are things for me to be doing, ways for me to be interacting. That's what the psalmist is all about here. Not only that, but Scripture is shaping the way he interacts with the Lord. It's shaping with the way he relates to God, but it's also influencing where he's placing his hope. Lord, you're my hiding place, you're my shield, and I hope in your word. We live in a world full of dashed hopes, don't we? I mean, that's, that's not hard to prove. Um, where, where hopes are just shattered. And that is primarily due to the fact that we live in a world where we are so prone to put our hopes where God is not guaranteed, or in things that God has not guaranteed. The psalmist says, I put my hope in your word. That is, if you've promised it, that's where I'm placing my hopes. If you've said it, that's where I'm placing my hopes, because you're a shield, you're a refuge. But you know this as well as I do. We are so prone to putting our hopes in our preferences, what our preferred outcomes are for fill in the blank. Some of those are very reasonable and you can understand why we would come to that. But the point is, when we put our hopes, that is our confident expectation in something that God is not guaranteed, we are set up to have those hopes shattered. The point here is that the psalmist is viewing Scripture as a means to an end. Particularly here, it's informing how he relates to God and where he places his hopes. Now, you also look in verse Psalm 119, verse 73. He says, Thy hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn Thy commandments. Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn Thy commandments. What's he saying? Well, somewhere along the lines of the one who made us, who created us, the one who knows us, has also spoken and is also our source of understanding. Now, there's more to it than just the fact that he's spoken, but there's, that's certainly a reality. When the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 24, that I delight in your testimonies and they are my counselors, you realize there's not a person on the planet that's not taking counsel from someone or something. Okay? No one's an island to themselves. We are all looking to some source and we are all basing what we do off of some source of counsel. Whether we're doing that uh, intentionally or not. And you know, that's 
That's the way we were created to function. Even before the fall, do you know Adam and Eve needed God's counsel even before the fall? In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, God puts Adam in the garden. He tells him what to do. Okay, he's, he's put there to dress the garden. And then he tells him what he can eat of and what he cannot. You see, before the fall, God gave directive counsel through his word. That is, just do this. This is, this is the purpose for which you were created. And here are the things that you ought to be doing. Adam was dependent on God for that. Well, after the fall, God began to not only give directive counsel, but corrective counsel. Okay, so it's, it's not just do this and here's your purpose and spend your time and attention here. Now it gets into corrective things. Things to not only avoid, but things to stop doing. Things, uh, uh, things to um, move away from, turn away from, things to replace and so forth and so on. And again, as we're here, the psalmist is viewing all of this as a means to an end. And that is a means to communing with the living God. The individual who goes to Scripture for counsel is really looking to God as their counselor. Really, God is, God is the one who spoke these words. We're saying, Lord, You've created me. Certainly, You can give me understanding. These are familiar. You know these. You don't have to turn here. But Psalm 119, verse 105, Your Word is a lamp unto my feet and a guide to my path. 130, The entrance of Your words gives light, gives understanding to the simple. More to say, but the first point is this. If you want to learn how to view Scripture the way the psalmist does in Psalm 119, 24, or really as a whole, number one, you need to learn to view Scripture as a means to an end, and that is a living relationship with a living God. Scripture is not your study guide. Scripture is not meant to prepare you for the Bible bowl. It's not meant to fill your head full of interesting, trivial facts. You are to acquire knowledge. You are to acquire understanding. There are facts to be known. But God is not a concept. He's a person. And He's a person that you've been called to relate to and live in relationship with. And Scripture is your means for that after you've been brought out of darkness into light, been made alive by the power of the Spirit. Number two... When you look at Psalm 119 as a whole, it is clear. The psalmist views Scripture as relevant for everyday life. I mean, we could just stop with relevant. The psalmist views Scripture as relevant. You want to know, I would, I would say you want to know the, the, the number one reason why well-intended, well-meaning Christians do not endure in Bible reading? It's because they don't think it's relevant. And I'm talking about me and I'm talking about you. We lose sight of the fact that what we're reading is relevant for me today. It's, it's relevant for my life today. It's relevant for my response to life today. And a, fail, a failure to view Scripture as relevant puts it over into one of those categories we spoke of earlier, that is just a rule book, an abstract body of truth, or a relic that's primarily meant to be revered from a distance. But that's not it. 
It's meant to equip. It's meant to enlighten. It's meant to guide. It's worth noting, Jesus viewed Scripture as relevant for everyday life. Matthew 4.4, you know this one. Man shall not live on bread alone, but he shall live on, live on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Paul viewed Scripture as relevant for everyday life. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It is a thorough furnisher for the man of God unto every good work. Peter views Scripture as relevant for everyday life in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, when he says God has given us... Um, uh, that, that God has given us this and it, it pertains to all things as it relates to life and godliness. And so if we come at Scripture with the idea that, you know, it, it's good for a sermon, we know it's good for that. It's good for a sweet thought, a sweet devotional thought. It's good for that. Um. And it's good occasionally. We're not coming at Scripture the same way Christ, Paul, Peter, and the rest of the biblical writers think about Scripture. As we've gone through this, I've kind of given you things to trace through Psalm 119 if you're engaged in doing that. One of the things, I'm going to give you some of them here, but one of the things that would be a... uh, a worthy study would be to, to work your way through Psalm 119 and just take note of all the different problems and circumstances that the psalmist is facing. And then take note of what he's doing in light of that. All the different circumstances and what he's doing. I'll give you some. He says in... Um, Psalm 119, verse 6. Then shall I not be ashamed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. The word ashamed there, really the experience is just disappointment. It's, it's not the kind of shame you're thinking about maybe when you think about shame. It's, it's disappointed. I will not be disappointed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. Or we think about verse 9. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? Purity. Purity. That's a, uh, man, that's a, that's a huge topic. And by the way, we're not going to trace all these all the way out. If you want to take note and think through some of these and study some of this, it would be well worth your time. But these are all doors you could walk into. Verse 22. This reproach and contempt is just, that's shame. Shame. Verse 23, the psalmist has political enemies. Right? Princes sat and spoke against me. 161 would pick back up on that. Princes have persecuted me without a cause. Wickedness in the political realm. Ungodliness in the political realm. You know anything about frustration with that? Verses 25 and 28 talk about intense sadness or depression. My soul cleaves to the dust. My soul melts for heaviness. Now, the psalmist is a little more honest than we tend to be in verse 36 when he says, Incline my heart to thy testimonies and not to covetousness. What he's saying, my heart is naturally inclined to covet. Right, we're there. What does it mean to covet? It just means to look around at everything that I have and be focused on what I don't have. 
to have a to have an overwhelming desire for that which God has not given me to be consumed with it. Verse fifty: The psalmist is enduring affliction. You could trace that one through a lot in Psalm one nineteen. Ridicule, verse fifty one. Horror or fear, verse fifty three. He's being oppressed, verse one thirty four. He's enduring trouble and anguish. Now, all these things are just words that encapsulate full-color life experiences. I mean, there's a lot of details that go into the, the, what's actually going on in each of these. So what does he do? What does he say? I have political enemies who are ungodly. What does he say? I cling to social media. Right? I inform all the sheeple that don't know what I know. No, that's not what he says. I cling to your word. I trust in your testimonies. Twenty-five, twenty-eight. My soul cleaves to the dust. What's the prayer? Quicken thou me according to thy word. Or twenty-eight. My soul melts for heaviness. Strengthen thou me according to thy word. This intense sadness that the psalmist is walking through. Where is he looking for help? It's the word. He's in affliction. Verse 50. That's a pretty general term. We don't really know exactly what the details of that would be. Afflictions, trials, difficulties. But in verse 50, he says, this is my comfort in my affliction. That I get to get my side of the story out first. No. That's not it, is it? Thy word has quickened me. You begin to see a little bit of a aftermath of that in 67, 71, 75. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. All right, these are the things that the psalmist is is focused on. Why? Because what he wants to do more than anything else is commune with the living God. And part of what that means is he wants to be able to view his life circumstances through the lens of Scripture that God has revealed so that he could say, in verse 71, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Afflicted. Doesn't feel good. He's not saying I'm, 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 uh, I've, I've enjoyed this whole affliction process. He's saying as I look at this from the lens of Scripture, as I'm strengthened and comforted by Scripture, this is what I know that as a result of the affliction that the Lord has sent my way or allowed into my life, it's been good for me. Because it has pressed me to learn His statutes. Or... Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right and that thou in faithfulness has afflicted me. Again, same, same concept here. God doing a faithful work through affliction. How do you come to a conclusion like that? Well, it's certainly not by how we feel. And it's certainly not somehow coming to that on our own accord. I mean, afflictions are all kinds of different things. We could think about 
conflicts. We can think about trials. We can think about losses. We can think about uh, just just miserable type circumstances. How do we come to conclusions like this? Well, it's, it's based on a desire and a commitment to commune with the living God as you go through the circumstance and then respond in light of what He's revealed. So you've heard me say this before. This is just kind of the Life 101. There are two things in life that you cannot control and you'll never be able to control. And that is people and circumstances. No matter how hard you try, you can look to the person next to you and you can look to the person on the other side and you will never be able to control them ultimately. Some of you are saying, well, I, I have kids and you keep doing your thing there, but if you think you're controlling them, we'll laugh together later because we know you're not. Uh, circumstances. We can't control them. As much as we would like to, we cannot. But there's one thing we can control. And that is our response to people and circumstances. The psalmist is seeking to bring his responses to people and circumstances into conformity with the Word of God as he communes with God in a world he has no control over. So, the question is, for us, does Scripture have anything relevant to say to me and you concerning our response to personal disappointment, purity, shame, political enemies and oppression, intense sadness, covetousness, affliction, ridicule, horror, fear, trouble, anguish, or any other circumstance we might find ourselves in. The psalmist here says yes. If we think about those things and we roll our eyes and say no, it should not be a surprise that an irrelevant book is not something that we endure in. If Scripture is irrelevant, we shouldn't be surprised if we're sporadic or neglectful of it. But if it's not, if it's a word from God that equips us and informs us, well, then we will have the same attitude as the psalmist. In Psalm 1, very first psalm, Psalm 1, Really, Psalm 119 is just an expansion and illustration of Psalm 1. It says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Some descriptors here for this individual. Number one, he's not walking. The, the, the word walk there is just uh, just our manner of life. He's not conforming his life to the counsel of the ungodly. So the opposite of that would be that his delight is in the law of the Lord. He's meditating in that. As a result, he's fruitful and the Lord blesses him to prosper. Well, I think it's important to recognize, it's probably obvious enough, but just in case, I think it's important to recognize that if the testimonies of God or the Word of God or Scripture is not where we receive our counsel, the only alternative is the ungodly. I mean, God has spoken, and anything contrary to that would be 
ungodly, right? And so you know already, you know this based off of experience, whether it's out of scriptural conviction or just just tired of the lunacy of things, the counsel of the ungodly will always aim to neutralize and normalize sin. The counsel of the ungodly will always aim to neutralize, normalize sin. You don't have to look very far to see that. The sexual revolution is a glaring example of that. All the... um, uh, all the the modern takes on um, transgender issues is a glaring example of that. And at the same time, the counsel of the ungodly will take normal things and seek to make them abnormal. Normal things and seek to make them abnormal. Um, Things like sadness. Uh, Things like conflict. You know, one one of the major buzzwords right now uh, in the culture and in the world of, of, uh, Counseling really is, is toxic relationships. You ever heard of those toxic relationships? One of the big things right now is you got to get rid of all your toxic relationships. Okay. And I got news for you. You're going to have to buy an island and fence yourself in if you're going to get rid of all your toxic relationships. You're surrounded by toxic people, whether you like it or not. Okay. Now I'm not saying, I'm not saying that the way they mean it, but, um, it is normal to have conflict. Did you know that? Some people think life is not supposed to have any conflict at all. Conflict can be good. There are times where you have to work through things relationally and your relationship can be much stronger after that. The world would have you to think that if you have conflict going on, what you need to do is to fly away and escape. Okay, so it's making abnormal that which is normal. Uh, another example of, of just ungodly wisdom, trying to normalize that which is abnormal. Um, take verses 9 through 11. 9 through 11. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? by taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee. O let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Now, I went here just to hit this one on purity. Um, We live in a culture where things like pornography... And sexual immorality has been neutralized and normalized. And I'm not just saying that off of a guess. I mean, you live in the same world I live in. But as I've done counseling over the years, I've counseled lots of folks with pornography addictions or enslaved to pornography who came in just thinking, there's no way around this. This is just what men do, and up and coming, the numbers with women are are shooting up fast. Many men and women are enslaved to pornography, and they don't think it's a big deal because they think everybody does it, and based on the intensity of the desire for it, there's no way to beat it. And godly wisdom says, I'm sorry, ungodly wisdom says, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. But you know that God's Word gives counsel that is directly opposed to the world's wisdom. And obviously that's a pretty clear cut one. 
It's not a neutral or normal thing to be addicted to pornography. Some men and young men need to know that. If you are enslaved to this, you can take heed to God's Word and you can purify your heart and life. You're not going to do it overnight. But you can take heed to God's counsel. And you can repent and turn from the behavior and then eventually the desires will will turn along with that if, if you do some other things. I typically tell people struggling with this sort of thing, enslaved to this sort of thing, we can set up a structure right now and if you follow it, you'll never look at porn again. And it's fairly easy. It's not easy from the standpoint of you're not going to have to fight, but it's pretty straightforward. If you get serious about fighting something like this, if you can deal with your access to it, your anonymity and your appetite, you got it. The appetite is the long term. Your desires aren't going to change very quickly. But if you can limit, restrict, or get rid of the devices that you have that are giving you access to that, and then get rid of your anonymity, bring yourself into the light, get yourself in accountability with somebody, you go a long way. Someone says, well, that's embarrassing. Sure. You want to know how to deal with your shame? Take heed to the Word. Begin to walk in His testimonies. Begin to commune with the living God rather than looking at Scripture as oppressive rules that make you uncomfortable. So, the psalmist here, and we could... We could open the door and go to all kinds of different uh, specifics here. But, but the psalmist here is saying, Lord, your, your testimonies are my counselors, not the ungodly, not worldly wisdom. So number one, he views Scripture as a means to an end, that is communion with God. Number two, he views Scripture as relevant. It has something to say about the way I'm responding to people and circumstances today. And then number three, the psalmist views Scripture as having a transforming effect in his life. The psalmist views Scripture as something that will have a transforming effect in his life. So we, we just mentioned it, but... Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse or purify his way? You know, I said it, the whole appetite thing is the long game. But you know, you replace thinking and meditating on immorality with thinking and meditating on Scripture, you'll awaken things and areas in your heart that you didn't even know were there. That's what the psalmist is talking about when he says, quicken me according to your word. Lord, bring comfort that I didn't even know was there. Make me to rejoice in ways that I didn't even know I could rejoice. Make me to delight in things that I didn't even think I could delight in. Lord, give me a desire for Your Word in a way that I didn't even think was possible. Sustain me through biblical hope in ways, again, I didn't even think was an option. Give me a peace that passes understanding. The psalmist views Scripture as having these kinds of transforming 
effects in his life and in his heart. Uh, we see this in, in uh, well, you could, you could trace this. I only have a few, but you could go through and trace, trace this through Psalm 119. What is Scripture doing in this man's heart? And it would be a worthwhile study. He says in verse 16, I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. I've mentioned this in some of the other messages. If you bump up to verse 15, he says, I will meditate in thy precepts. You know, one of the things that, um, one of the things that come in pairs in Psalm 119 is whenever he's delighting in the word, it's either preceded or followed by the fact that he's been meditating in the Word and he's been walking in the Word. So he doesn't just come to the verse of the day, read it one time, and start delighting. This is a man who is musing on the Word. He's thinking about it. He's rolling it over in his heart and in his mind. He's seeking understanding. He's seeking application for his own heart and for his own life. And as a result of that, he's delighting in it. He's being transformed by it. He's finding comfort where there was none. He's finding freedom where there was none. He's finding peace where there was none. And, and really what he's finding in passages like 103... How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Or 127, therefore I love thy commandments above gold, yea, above fine gold. Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. I esteem your precepts, your commandments above gold. What if moving into 2024, we said, um, we want you to keep a log. And every time you take 10 minutes to meditate on one scripture, let us know. We're going to give you. 20 bucks for every 10 minutes you put into meditating on Scripture. I bet I would have some takers on that. Okay. And if it went both ways, you'd have a taker right here. You know what Scripture says? I mean, we just read it. His word is far better than gold, it's far better than $20. 10 minutes meditating on the word, communing with God as your mind, your thoughts, your affections, your behaviors are, are, are not just filtered through, but transformed through. The Word of God is far better than gold. It's a love for the Word and for the things of the Word. And as your thoughts are transformed and as your affections are stirred, then your outer life will follow. Verses 59 and 60, the psalmist says, I thought on my ways and turned my feet unto thy testimonies. I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. Well, that's the picture of a transformed life. A man who's been meditating in God's Word. A man who has gained self-awareness by thinking, not just about Scripture, but about how his life lines up with Scripture and how his responses to people and circumstances line up with Scripture. He says, I've been thinking about that. And I've turned my feet and made haste to follow after you. Well, I don't know what you think about when you think about motivating messages that 
stir you up to get into God's Word. If I could give, you know, three blessings of being in Scripture or three strategies to getting in Scripture or something like that. Here's the, here's the reality. You will commit to what you love. Now, you will do that every time. And if you love the living God and you want to commune with Him and love Him more in the sense of having your affections stirred, having your thinking and your mind transformed, then you'll approach Scripture the same way the psalmist does. This is not a book for you to read so you can check off a box for the day and feel good about having a devotion. This is a book that opens up your avenue of communing with the living God as you meditate on the revealed Word and then respond to it. And so, may God bless us to say, along with the psalmist, your testimonies are my delight and my counselors. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we confess, uh, Lord, that we do uh, long to have a heart that echoes the heart of the psalmist here in Psalm 119, and, and that's not above uh, our grasp. Uh, Lord, He was made out of the same stuff we're made out of. We've been even given advantages over what He had. And so, Father, I pray that You would bless us to view Scripture the way that He views it. I pray that we would long to commune with You. And I pray that as we do that, that our affections would be stirred up more and more and more. I pray that Your Word would be our counselors. That we would see it as relevant. That we would expect it to be transforming. And that as we engage with the Word, that we would engage with it expecting to be changed as we behold You and are changed from one degree of glory to the next. Father, we love You. We are determined to follow after You. And we are also dependent on You for Your help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.